Welcome back to Between Two Wings. I'm your host, Jay Wiles. And today we're here with Dion Mitten. He's a commercial seaplane pilot who's done some incredible flying, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about it. Thank you so much for coming on, Dion. Hey, Jay. How's it going? Thanks very much for having me. Awesome. It's great to have you. The first thing we'd love to talk about is uh, our backgrounds, what we've got going on behind us. Uh, for me, my image is uh, one that I took on a seaplane flight out of Juneau, uh, Alaska, last May. Uh, my wife and I ended up taking a day trip kind of last minute when we were on a cruise, and it was an experience I'll never forget. We got to fly over several glaciers, uh, land in a lake, visit a lodge in the middle of nowhere, but it was one of my most amazing memories that I have. Yep, that sure looks familiar, Southeast Alaska. Um, well, I have a wilderness lake as well. It's at an undisclosed location. No, I'll take that back. It's about 65, 70 miles, depending on how you route to the east of Anchorage, which in terms of regions is known as also the south central region of Alaska. And it's a 206. You can see a little bit of the 206 in the image uh, on straight floats. I was, uh, uh, I was dropping off some fishermen at this lake. There's a forest service cabin. So they go there in the summertime to go fish and have fun. That's awesome. That looks like such an amazing picture. I love that. So Dion, you've uh, you've had some incredible experiences in aviation. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into flying? Yeah, so my uh, I was not brought up in aviation, like many people can relate to that. Uh, I had to DIY my uh, flying credentials. So it started in the night. Well, it started in childhood uh, times when obviously I was fascinated with the stuff overhead, looked up at the skies, and all of that. Uh, I finally uh, worked a few years, and then in the early 90s, I uh, got my PPL in Southern Africa in Cape Town. Of course, that's a ICAO uh, jurisdiction, and from my PPL, I kept on flying. You know, I participated in a bunch of interesting uh, competitive flying uh, disciplines. Uh, rally flying is a big uh, European IASA uh, type of discipline, so that taught me uh, a lot of interesting things about uh, spot landings, uh, you know, handling the aircraft in terms of a, a cross-country uh, kind of a discipline and just seat of the pants flying, which was really a lot of fun. Fast forward 20, um, uh, late tw uh, 20 teens, uh, I was in corporate America. I made a career in technology and I finally decided to uh, call an end to that, dust off my, and so I've been flying along, uh, you know, all of these years as a PPL. Finally got curious enough about uh, helicopter flying, got myself a helicopter FAA ticket. And uh, from that, I decided I really wanted to um, be on an island, live the island lifestyle, fly seaplane if possible. And uh, so I, uh, you know, I put in the time to uh, build all the certificates uh, in the FAA system, which of course, uh, as, as the... Uh, as the plan would have it, would be seaplane, single engine C, commercial instrument, and later on also did my multi instrument. So those are the ratings that I um, that I hold in terms of the FAA system. And uh, then my career started in uh, seaplane flying. That's wonderful. And you've had some incredible opportunities to fly in some amazing places. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into that? So after I visited Alaska in uh, mid-2005 or six, uh, this the float plane world really opened up to me. So one of the images that I had in my mind in terms of location and visualizing my lifestyle would be the Alaska wilderness, of course. But there was also a 
component that had palm trees and, and Caribbean tropical waters. So I joined a company in Florida that would allow me to operate a float plane into the, the tropical environment. And then from that, I uh, had the good fortune to also operate that uh, caravan, um, which was part of that fleet uh, into the Caribbean and also New York on the East River, as they would call it, uh, flying the river in New York. And uh, then subsequent to that, I uh, made the transition to Alaska and joined a company in Alaska and did the same thing, fly floats for the summer season. That's wonderful. So you've flown in some amazing parts of the world. They're pretty different though. So could you talk a little bit about the the challenges that you faced in flying in those different regions? Yeah, there's quite a, quite a, depending on how you look at it from a piloting perspective, there are a few really distinct challenges. Uh, if we just look at those three environments, first the Caribbean or the, the island operation, we're dealing with international operation so it's crossing the ages crossing the international boundary in and out of the faa system which is interesting uh, on its own but then also when you're crossing and flying between jurisdictions in some of the island nations you're essentially crossing fir boundaries uh, which means you're going from one you know jurisdiction into the the, the airspace of another country um, so the interesting challenges there is not only the atc and the communications piece of it but it's also the mode of operating uh, you'll go from a metric to a uh, imperial system, for example, where it'd be switching uh, Q&H to uh, altimeter, you know, setting um, uh, inches of mercury and um, and millibars. So in terms of cockpit procedure, communications procedure, crossing between these FIRs, and we're not flying at the flight level, so we're cruising below 10,000 feet for the most part in float. So it gets interesting. Um, also, the, the lingo, the vocabulary of the different ATC uh, system some of the, you know ref reference it's a non-radar environment for the most part in the caribbean <clears throat> so part of the challenge there is to uh, obviously for the atc is to maintain separation which is their primary function uh, in the caribbean and this is what some of the pilots there might relate to is they'll they'll reference uh, waypoints or position reporting points relative to uh, ndbs decommission or in-op NDBs, but in some ways they still have it on their map and they still like to reference that NDB. So you better be ready to dial it in on the on the map uh, and get a reciprocal and, and stuff like that. Then the New York airspace, of course, is just very plenty busy with three Bravos almost overlapping between Newark, Kennedy and LaGuardia. So that on its own presents the challenges of busy airspace uh, controlled and in the in instrument system airspace. And then you throw into the mix uh, the float operation, which is VFR um, daytime only on and off the water. In any of those weather scenarios, we'd be operating on and off the uh, river VFR in, a, in an exclusion below the Bravo, essentially a cutout below the Bravo, um, which is very busy it's on its own uh, definition, very busy with helicopter and, and float plane and also other you know, GA traffic. The transition between that um, uncontrolled airspace in and out of the Bravo airspace makes it really tricky because you're in a, a very uh, densely populated um, airspace with fixed wing and rotor wing mixing. Now, all helicopter pilots will know that that's a no-no. You, you try and uh, explicitly avoid uh, conflicting traffic between those two types. Uh, of course, the river forces us to fly in the same airspace, so that's challenging. And then once you're airborne, let's say on a on a departure scenario, you have to 
to enter or exit that airspace, you have to transition essentially uh, controlled class Bravo airspace. So there's a period when you're climbing out after takeoff from the river, um, you have to remain within the lateral boundaries and, and the vertical limits too. But you have just a, sm a small window in time uh, between taking off, to talking you know, uh, to the other traffic in the area and then getting on with, uh, let's say, LaGuardia Tower. And sometimes it's just difficult to get a word in sideways. So you're sitting, you're almost ready to transition. You're at the right altitude, but you just, just cannot get on the channel with them. And what that means is you have to remain outside the Bravo, as, as everybody would know. And that means remaining overhead this, this very confined piece of airspace that has lateral limits, the, uh, the, the shorelines. If you have to continue circling within that area, it requires fairly aggressive maneuvering, which is not quite ideal with a full load of passengers. It, it can be done safely, but it's a little unnerving with the passengers in the back if you're making really steep turns and you're flying directly towards buildings. So we try and avoid that, but it has its challenges. The other piece of the New York uh, airspace, which which gets really interesting late summer, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, climatic uh, conditions that bring a lot of uh, moisture off of the Atlantic. So we're dealing typically with late uh, late uh, late summer marine layer scenarios, which is down to minimum. So <clears throat> the interesting scenario is getting off. Let's say you're getting airborne off of the East River headed to East Long Island. Uh, you already know that you're dealing with a you know a 1500 or 2000 foot ceiling so you can get into the bravo remaining clear of you know ifr conditions but soon thereafter you need to get into the ifr system so that you can get sequenced for your approach which is about 30 minutes later uh, into you know flying an instrument uh, approach at a runway there so that's all fine and well and the, the you know the instrument system gets really tied up and really backed up and you might be number 20 in the queue even just after big getting airborne you know already know you're number 20 or something like that then the added complexity of having to miss a miss an approach and having to divert to the to your alternate now with the marine layer conditions odds are your alternates within 10 or 20 miles are also going to be below minimum so fuel planning becomes really interesting in that scenario and people that have flown around the long island sound know the, that those conditions can be fairly widespread so now you're dealing with a commercial operation max gross of the water with uh, uh, payload passenger payload and fuel and trying to manage the alternates uh, in a safe manner and that's that gets really interesting yeah that sounds okay. like a big challenge yeah it's a, it's a fun one Alaska, of course, has a totally different environment, uncontrolled airspace, but with lots of terrain, lots of weather, almost no fuel en route. Uh, so the, the challenges become your fuel management. Um, and as people that have flown in Alaska knows, uh, both from a common sense perspective and a compliance perspective, uh, carrying survival gear is not only mandatory, but also makes a lot of sense. So when you're uh, departing out of any uh, airfield or semi-controlled air uh, space where, let's say, for example, Anchorage, where you do have some air traffic control and <clears throat> some information uh, in terms of weather briefing, within 10 or 15 minutes, you're out of controlled airspace, you're in the backcountry, you're in a wilderness survival type of scenario should anything happen, whether it's a you know, precautionary landing or an unplanned event that you have to uh, you know, land at a, at a location where you didn't design to go. 
So the the challenge from a single pilot uh, perspective, which is the operations for the most part out of Anchorage, um, is dealing with all those uh, scenarios. And, and, and I would say the biggest dimension of challenge there is aeronautical decision making. Because as a single pilot, you're you're juggling a few, you know, many many uh, scenarios that that you have to constantly adjust. It's a very dynamic environment. Uh, so besides again terrain and climatic conditions, you're also dealing with uh, fuel and endurance and the fact that you're flying in a, a totally off-grid environment. That's so interesting. Just learning about flying in different all types of airspace. Um, so Dion, you've done all of this, all of these different types of flying. Um, what's next? Yeah, Jay, that's a that's an interesting question. You know, um, my initial check ride, the examiner ended our ride, which had a, a happy outcome, and his parting thoughts were: in flying, if you ever land at the end of a flight or get to the end of the day and you didn't have fun or you did not learn something, uh, make sure you go back and you fix those two things. Do what you need to do. So. I carry that forward in my aviation hobby, the intern profession, and I'd like to respond in the same manner. If uh, you know, I'll, I'll pursue aviation activities that continue to be fun and where I know I can learn a lot. So on my radar, there's the potential of getting involved in business aviation. I think there's plenty of interesting challenges uh, getting into operating in that regime. Both from a technology perspective, the you know the crew crewing perspective, the flying act activity could be fairly interesting and challenging. I think it could be a lot of fun. In addition to actually manipulating the controls, I'm also expanding my reach in terms of content, digital content production. And uh, what I found over the you know the many years that I've been involved in aviation, both professionally and uh, non-professionally, is there's such a rich uh, community of uh, activities around different kinds of flying, different kinds of activities where aviation play a key role in communities, uh, whether it's urban or you know uh, more rural locations, for example, Alaska. And I found that I've expanded my network of people uh, in, um, in very, very interesting parts of the globe. For example, the Scandinavian regions up into the Arctic, uh, the, the Alaska parts up into the Arctic as well, and some of the tropical areas and even in the African continent. So I'd like to continue to use my, um, my other skills in, in terms of photography and perhaps digital content creation and, and to bring more of those stories to, to the greater community for the purpose of inspiring the next generations uh, to uh, when they want to pursue aviation as a as a lifestyle whether it's just a career or getting involved uh, you know even from a non-flying perspective non uh, flight crew perspective aviation i think is one of those industries that truly can offer a lifestyle no matter which way you look at it and i think telling those stories and and using that to motivate the next and inspire the next generation is, is potentially a very meaningful cause. So that's one of the ways I'd like to give back to the community and back to the next generations. Well, Dion, thank you so much for coming on Between Two Wings. It's been really great to talk with you today. Oh, Jay, thank you, you guys uh, and Forflight and the whole team for 
making this happen. I really enjoy, obviously, your products. I use it extensively uh, in all those environments where I've operated, even internationally. Um, I'm one of the persons that will also gain the commercial jetliner and have four flight, <laughs> you know, following along. So I do love the product. Of course, I think uh, not only from a entertainment perspective in that mode, but it is just a, such a rich ecosystem. And it's really helpful uh, from a safety and a, a situational awareness perspective. So thank you for what you guys are doing. Thanks for having me. Really Absolutely. It. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. It's uh yeah, the on the commercial airliners, it's it's always fun to have it up and people in the seat next to you are like, huh, what is that? That looks really cool. So it's always yeah, fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Dion. And thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of Between Two Wings. We'll see you next time.